welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. If this is your first time listening into the show, everything simply put as follows. This is a podcast celebrating horror movies, celebrating anniversaries. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the weird, let's do year 12, let's do year 34. No, no, no. We're staying hard and fast with the big milestones of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years when it comes to celebrating. And that's because if you look at basically any point in film history, there's a horror film there that deserves to be, you know, put up on the shoulders and 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 to be discussed lovingly. Sometimes it's going to be the big, big heavy hitters that you know in the form of things like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. Sometimes it's going to be a smaller film. And on the show for the last couple of weeks, as we've been recording this backlog, people have been doing a really cool thing in choosing smaller films, films that don't always get the attention. Maybe they're a film that's only 10 years old and people just, you know, haven't really had a chance to relook at, or films that are still in that cult status that haven't fully moved and been embraced in the mainstream. Maybe you're a horror fan and you know all of them. Maybe there's a couple that you don't, but we think that all these films definitely deserve a place in your heart and right now while people have time to watch films this is the best time to revisit them i'm your host adrian torres and on this week's episode we are covering christmas evil or you better watch out whichever way you put it it's a film from 1980 that i don't think exactly goes over the way most people are expecting that's not to say it's bad at all it's actually the complete opposite of that but when you look at lots of these christmas horror films most people are hoping for you know straight out insanity uh, a gore fest just the wildest and wackiest thing that you can imagine and this film while it does get into that arena it doesn't exactly do what everybody thinks there's more of a psychological bent to it and that that's what i really like about it and i think one of the things you have to look at is one of the lead performances and that's First of all, I'm going to say that I'm glad that there wasn't a ho-ho-ho that accompanied that. Otherwise, we just have to stop the podcast right now for my own safety. But the person that we have on this week is somebody that I got to meet just last year at a film festival. And I was so excited because I absolutely adore the podcast that he is one half of. Now, for for those of you who who know this name and know the podcast, you might be saying, hey, where's where's his wonderful sidekick or why do you have the sidekick on and not the main host of that that's that's understandable we'll have them on in the future but i want to give a giant horrorversary welcome to mr jeff burnham of the cadaver cast podcast how are you doing sir oh i am doing a-okay adrian and you know it's funny when we met last year i had at that point i'm not i don't remember how many episodes of horrorversary you had out at that time but i had totally listened to it and (laughs) i didn't even connect until later that you hosted horrorversary and i was like oh my god (laughs) i've heard him like i've heard his show and him on uh nightmare junkhead and everything and it just didn't even occur to me at the time <laughs> and, and yet i was the one who was like hey wait i know who this guy is and i, w- I was the one who, who made the connection with with you first which that that was just a great time first of all but like i said the the cadaver cast for most people who don't know the podcast which they should they should listen to it again while they have time please let everybody know what that show's about yes yeah, so it's a show that was the brainchild of my literal child uh, we started it when my son was four years old. He's now eight, and we talk about monster movies. And uh, we're nearing on a hundred episodes. So wow. we, yeah, we review uh, horror movies, but then also because there are all kinds of movies that we want to talk about that he can't actually watch. We, I like have him speculate about them. You know, like what does he think the story of Silence of the Lambs is? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I don't know what else to say about it other than that. It's just, you know, father and son and just chatting about monsters. Cause that's basically all we do with our time anyway. And, and now that's not the only thing you do, correct? I mean, in general, no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, plenty of other podcasting stuff for sure. And I'm a screenwriter and I teach at, uh, DePaul university. And so I am a busy guy. This is but, but you, ha- you definitely have your bona fides is, is what I what I want to say. And just, just to show that we 
we we like to have the guest on here be be varied. Sometimes they're fellow podcasters. Sometimes they're people who've made uh, movies, whether it be short films or feature films. Um, sometimes they're they're film critics and, and writers. So you've got a little bit of of every single piece that we kind of <laughs> that, out that's, for. that's true. Yeah, I I uh, I do film criticism and I work on movies and I write movies and I've had a screenplay optioned and screenplays circulated. Uh, I just finished writing a screenplay and I'm starting another one. So I'm always just so busy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, but that's good at the same time. Now you, you chose this film and I was really excited about it. Cause we put several out and, and we decided on one that we'll do in a couple months from now to have the full cadaver cast crew on here. But, but you signaled out this movie. So that, that jumps in to the first question we have. If this is your first time listening to the show, or you haven't listened a little bit, welcome back, or thank you for, for listening. But we have a uh, very easy format to follow. Every episode, we have a guest who comes onto the show who chooses the film that they're going to talk about. This basically becomes a glorified gush session. And within that, we have five basic questions that I ask every guest who comes on. And depending upon how the answer is kind of how we, we get into certain nooks and crannies when it comes to the film. And the first question we like to ask everybody is, do you remember the first time that you saw Christmas Evil? I absolutely do, um, because it's it's funny because the first time I did it was actually for a podcast um, (laughs) in 2017. But it's a show that uh, I record on like Patreon, like just Mm -hmm. for Patreon, Uh, because, you know, with Al, it's got to be really family friendly, but. I also like to watch a lot of really sleazy, gross, weirdo movies with my friends. And so occasionally we'll sit down and just record something about it. Just watch movies we've never seen and then just like throw our initial thoughts into a microphone and see what comes of it. Um, And so for the 2017 Christmas episode of that show called Cinemuck, my friend Tyler and I, we watched just a bunch of Christmas horror movies and a lot of them were like, meh. But this one just blew us away. Uh, I purposely didn't listen to that again, just so, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be giving you recycled material, Adrian. But uh, that was like my initial reaction. I'm excited to listen to it again sometime just because it was so fresh. And since then, I've watched it a bunch. But it was just in 2017. And man, I've watched it maybe six or seven times (laughs) since then, I swear. But that's, I mean, that, that that definitely talks about the staying power for it. So, I mean, you, you clearly connected with the film r- right upon the first watch. Yeah, I mean, it was basically, uh, I mean, as soon as I watched it, it probably was like, you know, rapping at the door for my top hundred, like, favorite films automatically. Uh, it's, I mean, I'm wearing the T-shirt right now, <laughs> and uh, I've got a sweater that I just bought so that I can wear it to my in-laws for Christmas this year, Perfect. assuming Christmas isn't, you know, canceled or whatever. Don't say that. Don't say that. That's, <laughs> that's too far away. We're recording this in April, and we don't want to think about the possibility that December we're, we're still, you know, stuck at home and doing everything that we're doing now. No, let's let's be positive, and let's say that we'll get, you know, C- Christmas in July or something. Uh, hopefully well, you know, that. we could just we could also view it positively, though, that in December we could just still be hiding away recording podcasts together <laughs> as well. So, I mean, I, I you know, guess this all works, works out. Um, now, the second question that we ask everyone, we I, I have to preface this every time that I'm wording it differently than like the first half of the episodes, because we we had a couple people who got a little too excited talking about the film. So for the uninitiated, please describe the pl- the synopsis basically of Christmas Evil in as few words as possible. Oh, absolutely can do. Uh, this is a film about a man who is so obsessed with Santa Claus that he wants to be Santa Claus. He embraces the Christmas spirit to such an extent that he, oh, how, how to how to put it succinctly. He feels Christmas more than anybody else in the world, mm-hmm. and it expresses itself in upsettingly violent uh, actions and bizarre targeting of children for somebody who isn't actually Santa Claus. 
And he kind of goes on a Christmas Eve gift giving and murder rampage. That that's that's perfectly enough. Now, like I said before, we really like diving into these movies. So in every episode, we have a moment to pause if you haven't seen this film. Now, like several other films we've been able to cover recently, this one's actually pretty easy to view right now. If you have a uh, Shutter account, or if you're somebody who doesn't have Shutter, they do have that um, promo code uh, Shutter Shut In uh, that gets you, you know, your first 30 days for free. Not a sponsor. Wish they were a sponsor. We're not that lucky, but, <laughs> but still, it's, it's Shutter. You can try it for 30 days. This is on there, but it's also one of the films that's on Vudu right now uh, to watch for free. So th- there's basically no excuses for not seeing this film. But we're gonna pause right here so that you can go see the film if you haven't because we're going to definitely get into spoiler territory so we can get knee deep in what it is that makes this film so special so we're going to pause now and there you go that's it a literal second to pause you 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 should have your phone by you you should be yelling at it you can pause i'm rambling now to give you a couple few more seconds that you can pause but what's interesting about this film to get into it off the top is uh because I've been recording several episodes back to back to back to, you know, give you a peek behind the curtain is that less than 24 hours ago, I recorded an episode with Greg Dedrick of uh, Nightmare Junkhead and the film that he chose was Fade to Black. And what's Um. really interesting about watching Fade to Black and then several hours later watching Christmas Evil is how much like how similar they are with the fact that you have these two characters are definitely enveloped in something that that the thing that they're obsessed with takes on you know a a larger than life persona basically that that it envelops everything that they do to the very fiber of their being that they want to live in that state of that thing that they love yeah that's fair that's uh i hadn't thought about it i'm just like staring at my ceiling marveling at the thought that like i could have done the double feature i have my vhs copy of fade to black that i bought that's actually a, a sealed copy that i've been going should i open it should i not open it <laughs> i haven't watched the movie since i was like 17 and i'm like ah it's sealed though and uh man i should have unsealed that and watched it with this <laughs> it, it, it's it's strange how it works because both of the films i i think christmas evil works better uh from the character study aspect because benford goes in some weird directions that aren't uh, fully explained, whereas Harry's journey, um, you can definitely track everything on. And and the big question that I have to ask you is, is what is it that made you, you know, want want to choose this film? What what's the connection that you have that that makes you? I mean, you you own several articles of clothing for it. So what what is it about this film that you think puts it over the top of of other Christmas horror films? There's something about it that. Like in my own personal philosophy, I can connect with it on like a really deep personal level where I I really want, you know, every year for that Christmas to happen. You know, that the the quote Christmas we used to know, the Christmas that we're nostalgic for, the Christmas that doesn't really exist because it was manufactured and it was always a feeling that we just had, but something we never really experienced. And this movie is about a guy who also feels that but can't recognize the falsehood of it. Uh-huh. And then it manifests in something that's incredibly dangerous and disturbing. And uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm sick, but that's kind of uh, – it makes sense to me, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> that you would – try to grab something out of the ether and like coming up empty handed, just go berserk, you know? And well, it, and it, it's like perfect for the spirit of Christmas as I feel it and understand it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Completely. I mean, that's, what's interesting about the movie is that there's many play- ways that you can watch it. And there's many ways that you can interpret what's going on. You can easily watch it being like, <clears throat> I want to see a grimy, um, early 80s that feels like it's a late 70s film you know that's horror that that does have kind of a sleazy and dirty aspect to it but at the same time when you're watching it and you're tracking it from both the critical standpoint and then watching it trying to figure out what is it about this movie that that people you know attach themselves to 
is you find that it's got a really interesting uh, character study and the the comments that it's making on with the character because Harry isn't, even though it has Christmas evil in the title, he's not directly outright evil because you see no. certain acts that he's doing. Yeah, I mean, it's I've described it to people when I've been trying to recommend it to them. And I guess I could have even more succinctly described the narrative of it this way. Um, I've described it as taxi driver if instead of wanting to murder politicians and drug dealers and people based on the color of their skin, Travis Bickle just wanted to be Santa Claus. Yeah, and, and I can completely see that. And that's what's interesting about the movie when you're tracking it as it goes along is – while he is inherently creepy and he's creepy about the way he's going about certain things, if you take out the the murderous aspect of the film, that he's not really doing bad things, that he has this desire of wanting to do good in the world. And while he is extremely off-putting when he shows up at uh, the hospital, still the fact that he's like, no, I know the company's not going to give these toys away. And so the right thing to do is to actually give them to the children. Like we're saying we want to do. You're like, that's, that's pretty decent. Or, or even when he's uh, scary at that little party that he gets tossed into, he's still sending a good message to the kids about, you know, the, the basic tenets of, of being good and, and you'll get rewarded. And if you're not good, then there's a chance that you're going to get punished. Yeah. Ultimately he is kind of right about, Almost everything and in almost everything he does, because as he puts it, you know, the world wants something out of Christmas. The world talks about Christmas in a certain way. They think about Santa in a certain way. And yet when he gives it to them, he finds they don't want it. You know, that like it was all a sham, you know, that yeah. they they talk about wanting, you know, the spirit of giving or whatever. But when he tries to give, actually give on Christmas, people don't trust it. You know, when he finds his employers trying to do something for charity, he realizes that it's just a PR move, that nobody in the world is sincere. And this is like him coming to terms with that, even as he is finally becoming Santa Claus. And so like his greatest life aspiration is coming to fruition at the same time is his understanding of the world is kind of coming crashing down around him that like he's achieving his lifelong goal even as the world is just putting him in in his place for having thought even for a moment that charity was a good thing that you know having an interest in the children of the world was a good thing and uh it's sad but also like empowering by the time you get to the end of it. Well, especially when he's he's constantly talking throughout the movie about the fact that um, he he thought he knew the notes, but now he finally knows the notes so that he can you know sing his own tune, uh, which he considers to be you know the tune that everyone else is uh, is is singing in life. You know is you know what their purpose is, what what their goals are. But he realizes once he's able to sing the tune that everyone else is actually not in harmony. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's kind of embodied by, you know, the his brother, who's played by Jeffrey DeMunn, who's just wonderful. So I don't, so he doesn't get enough credit in the world in general for being as amazing as he is. And he's so good in this movie in what <laughs> is almost a bit part as Harry's brother. But he, so... Jeffrey DeMunn's character, and I can't even remember his, I just call him Jeffrey DeMunn, even when I'm watching the movie. He's, he's, but. he's filled because he has the weird at first when, when they're kids, he gets called Philly, but then it turns uh, out that his name right. is Phil. So, right, right. So Phil is actually like a repo man of some sort. So he's like a reverse Santa Claus, <laughs> you know, and like, he's got a family and they're happy and they're living in, uh, basically, uh, his childhood home. And or at least it's the same house. I don't know if it's supposed to be the same house, but it is definitely the same house. But he's living in that house and uh, he's he's happy. But on, you know, the backs of suffering people, you know, he's a repo man, basically, which is, again, opposite of Santa. He's anti Santa, but he's the, quote, happy, stable one. Yeah, he, he's basically the, uh, the the heat miser to his brother, Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the the third question that we like to ask is, is there 
a specific signature moment or sequence that stands out in your mind that that kind of puts this above other films? I mean, absolutely. It is the very end of the movie. So, again, if you haven't watched it yet, I'm about to just say it verbatim what happens Um, because it's the absolute final image of the movie where you've got Harry. He's in his I I was going to say creepy van. It is a creepy van, I guess. But he's got his van, which he's stenciled a um, uh, like a sleigh on the back of and he drives around town delivering presents and meeting out justice on rude individuals. Um, And then the very end of the movie, he's being chased by a mob with torches, (laughs) (laughs) which is uh, amazing in its own right. And he goes off of a cliff kind of in New Jersey and his van, rather than crashing to the ground and exploding, soars off into the sky on Christmas Eve. And it's magical and a moment that you can take any number of ways. <laughs> and, I, and I know the director, uh, Lewis Jackson, has a very specific interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. But I find the questions that it asks more intriguing than any of the actual answers. Because if he's really flying away in his van, he was right. Yeah. And that is marvelous because you watch something like um you know silent night deadly night Mm -hmm. and he's not right like in that movie that guy uh uh billy is that is that right in silent Uh, night deadly night oh god i i I know billy's um black christmas billy's black christmas um and then ricky is the brother in silent night deadly night part two yeah Uh, i feel is whatever his name is silent night deadly (laughs) night guy like he's an emotionally mentally scarred person who kills people and is wrong for it, even though he's got kind of like a weird code of honor. Yeah. But Harry at the end of the movie might actually have been right to like scare the hell out of these kids, give away a bunch of stolen toys and stab a guy in the eyeball. Like sure. <laughs> the and, end and, he's and, kind of vindicated. Uh... And hatchet somebody's head as well. First of all, you're oh, right. Yeah. It was it was Billy as well. So that's that's two Christmas horror movies that both have um, Billy's with the there you go taking out people. But yeah, um, what's great about that because going back to Demon is that uh, Phil looks up when he when he falls over and everything. He doesn't like look down as if the car is crashing. He looks up to the sky. Yeah, when, when it's flying away. So it's either maybe getting punched in the face you know it's causing him to hallucinate or he's somehow you know it, it decided that you know the spirit of christmas is real and he's seeing it but i mean it kind of it kind of goes into that and the the ending's crazy and you mentioned the pitchforks and you know where that came from right with like the the whole mob thing yeah with, uh like from the old i don't know like it's a reminiscent of frankenstein movies or whatever yeah but i don't and, know and, specifically well, no, that that's that's what for? Lewis uh, Lewis was doing. That's what the director was yeah. was going for. Is that he he didn't view the movie as a slasher film, uh, but more along the lines of of Frankenstein, which yeah. for from a certain degree is weird until you really get to that uh, film. But I I did pull up a couple quotes from him that I thought was was really interesting on what he was trying to do because for lots of uh, the the Christmas horror movies, it's just we want to make a, a film that's you know takes place at christmas and is a horror movie and and that's enough whereas he put more work into it even though part of it happened to to deal with when he was uh, smoking a joint and and it was like this is a great <laughs> idea uh but he was extremely enamored with uh carpenter's halloween and so he really wanted to try to find a way to continue that tradition of having you know a, a horror movie uh, that was based around a holiday, and he really liked Black Christmas, but he wanted to do uh, something that that was different. Um, and so he made the comment, so suddenly I have a Christmas horror movie, and nobody had dared to deal with that outside of Black Christmas, which is essentially a slasher movie using Christmas, but doesn't really deal with Christmas. I've buried myself in Christmas lore for years, and I had this material, which is what another element that I think sets this apart, and what struck me even more so watching it with this eye this time 
is how much Christmas is in every single pore of the film. While it doesn't use uh, the holiday songs that you're normally uh, attuned to or that you're going to see in bigger budgeted films, there are Christmas songs throughout the film. Christmas is in every pore and every moment of the film. It's not just that the film takes place at Christmas, that it has so much different uh, iconography whether it be, you know, the parade that's on TV, the movie that the kids are watching, the songs that are around every corner, that uh, definitely uh, cinema verite guerrilla style shot from far away of Rockefeller Center's uh, lighting ceremony, that every single element of Christmas is in this film. It doesn't just take place at Christmas. It 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 captures Christmas. And, and it goes all the way back, too, into like the you know, earlier notions of what Santa Claus was, you know, the more Germanic tradition as well, because obviously in America, our Santa Claus is sweet. You know, mm-hmm. he's a sweet man who brings everybody presents. But of course, the more European traditional Santa Claus is like, he's kind of a guy who might bring you presents, but you also might end up thrown in a bag and like <laughs> taken away forever if you're bad. You know, that's like, the consequence of not getting presents is, isn't enough in the European tradition. It's like you not only won't get presents, you might get coal, you might get thrown in a bag and taken away by a monster. And so he embodies all that as well. And there's, of course, all the great um, the, uh, Thomas Nast. Uh, Thomas Nast? That sounds right. The cartoons, right? The, yeah. the like political cartoonist who did all those Santa Claus drawings and they're you know, on his wall, like framed in Harry's apartment, you know, of like the the sort of mean, you know, um, dwarfish Santa Claus, you know, with a gavel, like, you know, passing judgment on evil children. And, and I mean, that's that's what's interesting. It's that in films like this, you always have the cops are, are like hot on the trail of the person who's doing all the killings. And we only get a couple minutes of of that in this one. And and almost just by having uh, Raymond J. Barry there for a few minutes makes it feel more more normal. Um, <laughs> also, also it feels like a role that he somehow stole from John Saxon, um, because even though it's only five minutes, it seems like Saxon would be like, "I've I played a cop my entire career. I just played it, you know, a couple years ago. I'm going to play it in a couple years. I'll do it here." But Raymond J. Barry still has it. But it's his partner that I like the most because it's the partner who's like, you know what? Uh, maybe it's kind of good that we have the Santa Claus doing stuff because he's put that fear of Christmas back in the kids and and he gets to talk about that. And it was interesting to have that perspective that you have the cop who's not like, oh, we've got to get him. He's like, no, you know what? This uh, this might actually be good and make, you know, kids scared of being bad. Yeah. And uh, and again, going to, um, you know, the obvious corollary in Silent Night, Deadly Night. There's kind of none of that in it. They're just like, oh, it's somebody dressed as Santa. And then they go and they start shooting Santa Clauses, you know. <laughs> but the the philosophy here is really strong and so focused on Christmas in, uh, you know, every respect. Every conversation is about the Christmas spirit. It's about commercialism. It's about the devaluing of the real spirit of Christmas. But like right before our nation turned to this greed fueled nightmare <laughs> that would like forever kill any positive notion of Christmas that poor Harry has in the movie, you know, like it's on its way out. And this movie was made right before it got a million times worse. Well, I mean, they kind of hint upon that with the guy that they're uh, bringing in to be one of the suits who, yep. um, when Harry asks him, you know, how many kids, you know, are getting the toys? Do you know how many how many toys are we donating? Is every kid going to get one? And the guy's comment is, oh, I just worked on the promotional campaign. That's that's it. Yeah, exactly. He's like, hey, what what do you care? We're going to sell more toys because of this, you know. <laughs> so it works oh. out. I mean, it's 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 interesting, too, because of I, I, there's something about the film that grabs you it's not it's never gratuitous to the point that you expect or you might think if you see the poster and and you see that it's put out by like vinegar syndrome for the blu-ray and had been put out on dvd by um synapse before that or even before that when it was put out by trauma that that you see that lineage and you're expecting something different and you have this film that's much more a a, uh, character study 
than it is a full on uh, splatter fest. Yeah, I mean, it's more of a think piece than it is, you know, uh, you know, random Linnea Quigley nude scene movie. And it's what's we, funny we'll is still support I, that we'll still support I mean, that, though. Uh, we love Linnea Quigley here. <laughs> um, Alistair is a huge fan of her, uh, even though he's like never seen one of her movies ever. <laughs> uh, he, he and she became pretty fast friends at a movie marathon. So. Um, and I'm not one to gloat, but you know, my friend and Linnea quickly, they, they seem, they're pretty close. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I was watching like the commentaries and stuff, like bits and pieces of the commentaries with Lewis Jackson. And, uh, he was talking in one of them about how, you know, he, the movie has this violent side to it. It's got some more exploitation elements to it, but he really wasn't trying to go, you know, hog wild with that. Because he was trying to say something. He's making an intelligent, artistic film. You know, he's constantly pointing to, like, uh, Douglas Sirk and Fassbender as, like, his inspiration uh, for, you know, uh, different elements of cinematography, different aspects of the storytelling. And he was told later by an executive that the reason the movie wasn't as big a hit as it could have been is because he didn't show Santa Claus eating a kid's finger. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about that, like that industrial perspective of, yeah, you made a weird, gross, off-putting movie, but it's not weird and gross enough for us to promote. And it's not enough of a normal Christmas movie for anybody to accept. It's somewhere in a liminal space where you've got to love gross movies and be an intellectual to fully appreciate. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that's one of the, the, probably the greatest notes that you could ever have. Um, (laughs) and I love that. I love, I mean, also that lets you know that your, your film's unique because they, they're disappointed that you're not going hog wild. Um, and that does enter into, uh, probably my favorite question that we've been asking everybody just because of the films that have been chosen. and, And I definitely think that Christmas evil fits into this. And the question is, can you think of any contemporary or modern films um, that would be comparable to Christmas Evil? Um, they, they don't have to be, you know, spot on. But uh, what what is it about those uh, films that, that makes them pale in comparison uh, to Christmas Evil? Mm, I mean, I was like my instinct knee jerk reaction is to point to Krampus. I think that's got a lot of the same, you know, pro-Christmas and anti-consumerism thing going for it, but definitely kind of a glossier approach. Um, One that's maybe just as comedic, but more pointedly, outwardly comedic. But um, does it, I, I mean, it pales in comparison, I guess, because, I mean, anything that follows Christmas Evil that's saying anything the same as Christmas evil, you know, it's, it's going to be a little, a little late. I mean, this movie is 1980, you know? And so Krampus is 2015 and it is saying basically all the same things as Christmas evil about the holiday, but you know, only uh, 35 years later. <laughs> but, but wouldn't the difference when that one be safe to be that, um, that, that the Krampus character, well, you do see them is more of a, uh, outright monster that um, that that delights in in the killing and the film uh, you know glorifies the people that are being picked off as opposed to the more focused character study that this one has. I mean, there are characters that are in that movie, uh, but they're sliding more to the comedic and over the top um, point as opposed to being you know fully rendered people. Yeah, they are more archetypes. You know, you've got the the archetypal right wing family with their guns, you know, and their sports playing kids. And then you've got the uh, more progressive family who, you know, we still celebrate Christmas and we have pheasant or whatever instead of <laughs> uh, turkey. I don't or I don't remember what it was like Cornish game hen or something <laughs> that she's cooking up with creme brulee for dessert. So they are far more archetypal characters than you get in christmas evil it's not something where it's like here's a human being 
it's more like these are representing the kind of two major sides of our national divide in 2015 and moving more so into 2016 even. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're definitely not as human as Harry. You know, there isn't that aspect of following one person in their disillusionment. It's like sort of a, like a synecdoche for our entire national disintegration as embodied in this holiday that has become this gross consumer thing. And again, it's just because, you know, Harry and his story is on the pre-Reagan side of this that it's able to be so subtle. You know, that it does take a journey through one person's eyes, one human being's eyes to see the corruption inherent in it. Whereas nowadays, like you can put it in a meme and <laughs> we can understand it in six words. It took, you know, 94 minutes for Lewis Jackson to tell the story and make this criticism and commentary that we can we can slap on a picture of Keanu Reeves, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't complain it's Keanu Reeves but I, I totally understand but to go back to what you said a couple minutes ago about uh, the comment that the executive made is do you think that's what holds um, some of the modern horror movies or, or, or Christmas based ones back a bit from wanting to dive into more of a, a character study is that that notion that you know execs are probably saying hey we need uh, Santa be, to be meaner we need more of the the, the gross out or the gore bits to keep people glued to the screen. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, just because the biggest, most um, notorious example of a Christmas horror movie is silent night, deadly night. That sort of becomes the standard oh. of all of them to follow because of the media frenzy surrounding it. And so we just get killer Santa after killer Santa or whatever. And they're really mean slashery movies. And it does make sense from a commercial perspective. Um, you know, you don't want to make a movie that isn't successful. You know, I don't think anybody <laughs> like, I mean, maybe they do, but like, even though I write, you know, horror movies and I write movies that I, I think of as a little more intellectual, I still would love them to be successful if they get made. I'm not trying to write a movie that is just for like 12 people, you know? <laughs> and, and if you see in the history of Christmas horror movies, Poor Christmas Evil getting churned out on VHF, VHS after VHS with different titles each time <laughs> and none of them perfectly representative of the film and like misadvertised. You know, you're going to maybe veer more towards into what the advertisements were, you know, when it's released as uh, what was it? Murders in Toyland or something like that. Oh, gee, that I, I wasn't familiar with that one. Yeah, some, something like that. It had some alternate title on a VHS where, you know, you go, OK, well, that's what we need to aim for now, I guess. You <laughs> well, know, not the think piece element of it, but the yeah. murders in Toyland. Well, yeah, I mean, def definitely when it comes to, you know, the the Santa Claus aspect to it, you, you do have, you know, some Christmas horror films that are focusing on on the backdrop of Christmas that are, you know, they're dealing with family trauma and so they do have characters that, that do get, um, you know, more of a, a study or uh, an, an embodiment to them that they're not so paper thin and just archetypes. But it feels like for for Santas, they always want to to focus on just the murder Santa, not what the reason behind it is, except for, you know, a, a throwaway line where somebody's like, oh, it's because, you know, the world's descending into into chaos and, and needs to be reminded of the, the true reason of christmas but they're usually um like otherworldly monsters like literal monsters um wh whether it's, it's something like santa sleigh with goldberg mm -hmm. of all people um which is or, a hell of a lot of fun it is know, like it is i also own that too <laughs> like you know well, but, yeah, but I mean, there it's it, it it's I think it's what what keeps uh, Christmas Evil being different. You know, you even have something in other countries like uh, Scent, of course, that the wonderful um, poor poor director's name of Dick Moss um, mm. does Scent, and and so while it's a different country, and you know they do have different ideas when it comes to Santa Claus and stuff, it's still you know this otherworldly evil. Uh, version of their Santa Claus is the one that's coming around and 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 murdering people that you know it's not a person that 
hey, here's the person, here's their their ideology behind it. You know, it's always something like small, like even the um, the Silent Night technical remake that's not really a remake from yeah. from 2010. It's like, well, yeah, there is an ideology behind this, but it's a really small, <laughs> you know, thing. You're, you're not spending time with those characters. Lots of times the, the murderers, uh, Santa Claus are tertiary characters almost. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's something that I was going to point to uh, as well because if you look at it, then something like the Dial Code Santa, mm-hmm. you know, which is getting a lot of uh, hype since it ended up on Shutter uh, and recently, it's great. and it is great. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, it's you know, Home Alone basically, but with a murder Santa. Yep, a, and... a murder, a murder, homeless, fired mall Santa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's not representative of like the Christmas spirit or the the degradation of the holiday. He's just a crazy guy. You well, know, he's, he's. I mean, I guess he's technically slightly closer to Harry because of the the fact that his his whole thing initially is that he wants to uh, help this kid. Uh, stay believing in Santa Claus and not and not yeah. to be as jaded as the rest of the world is. He and just course, goes about then, it in the worst way possible. But yeah, and I mean, he does, you know, again, meet out some justice. That girl's like whining at him, so he slaps the hell out of her, <laughs> you know. Um, but <laughs> he's he's again, it's not quite about the philosophy in the same way. The movie's more about a kid learning that you know Christmas is BS. And it's more of his journey. And I feel like that's maybe the the way that these things end up now is we got to look at it from the other side of like the corruption. Um, Whereas Harry is embodying the actual corruption of the holiday Mm -hmm. on the flip side of, again, Reagan era pro greed, you know, consumerism is everything that climate change in our nation uh, and in the world on the flip side of it the best we can kind of do is show a kid realizing that because adults know this by, Mm -hmm. by the time you're not a kid anymore, you realize everything is about money and this is just the miserable state of things. (laughs) Whereas you can only show Harry's story now from like a child's perspective. And I I think there's a chance that that child in in that movie, uh, we we won't spoil anything for that because you should definitely check it out. It's, it's really good. Um, it has an absolutely ridiculous Bonnie Tyler Christmas song, which is probably one of the oh most God. one of the most depressing Christmas songs you will ever hear. Uh, especially because, like, part of the the refrain is, uh, "Why does he have to cry to become a man?" <laughs> and like, just just look at the lyrics. Just put in Bonnie Tyler Christmas song. Look at the lyrics and go, "Oh my God, what is this? Who is this for?" Um, and like I said, not entirely spoiling anything, but there's a chance at the end of that movie that that kid might go on to become his own version of Harry years later. Uh, there is a good chance of that. <laughs> As it is, man, it just wrecks me that that song. There, oh boy. Oh God, that it, it's just great. Just definitely go see it. If you need a laugh, but also be terrified at the same time, watch that film. Now, that brings us to the final question that we ask, which is kind of a vote in a way. Um, And the question is, having seen the film again now for, you know, the sixth or seventh time for you, uh, do you feel that this film is still worthy of its reverence, should probably be seen by more people? Or do you think that the shine is slowly coming off it? Oh, no, I think it's better every single time. I mean, and I do think everybody should watch it, if not if for no other reason than to kind of you know, it lets you connect with that vision that we all had as kids of Christmas as like this really, really special thing, you know, to like see it through an adult's eyes and to to see somebody go through the realization at a much later stage in life. And I think it just kind of uh, again, it's it's sad But it's also empowering as well, this, you know, that you could hold on to these ideals and have them still be as strong as an adult and maybe even be right, you know, and like this, I don't know, kind of a crazy punk rock way of like, you know, if you embody something like hard enough and strong enough, the world will change around you, the (laughs) the, like 
like the laws of physics will reorient to meet your perspective. And there's something incredible about that journey. But I, again, I don't think that we see movies saying this the same way anymore because we're just on the flip side of what Lewis Jackson was seeing happening at that time. And on the other side of that, of the 1980s, you know, it's, I mean, it's to, to have a character who's an adult not understand this would be ludicrous, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, what's, what's interesting about the movie is uh, this is another instance where the movie comes out in 1980. Um, so it's being made before that. So it's being made in the late seventies with that, that aesthetic and feeling of the, of the character pieces that they had at the time, you know, of the, of the smaller independent films that were taking chances that won't be outside the norm. So it still has the feeling of that, but then it's hitting in the eighties. And of course we know that at the same time that this is coming out, um, you're a couple months removed from uh, Friday the 13th coming out. And, and that being the one that, that leads the charge to, you know, the, the slasher genre as you have it. And then you have stuff like nightmare on Elm street. So you get into, you know, the murderers and, and the monsters and you do have some character study pieces in there when it comes to horror, but they're usually the outliers. Usually, they're usually the ones that people gravitate to because um, they're different. So I think that's what makes this special. Uh, I think you could do it uh, nowadays, but I think that there's um, a fear in, in potentially doing it and wanting to make sure that you're giving the audience um, what they want and worrying that if you don't do that, that they, they might you know turn against the film if you're taking that chance and what's weird about it watching it um and i i i feel terrible making this comparison but i mean we already mentioned taxi driver so we have to you know address the joker in the room um sure and sure. that th there's definite uh ties in the way they go about uh things in this of course traffic travis bickle you know definitely has his path um but when it comes to like watching this and Joker, like I can see more through lines. I I am on the standpoint that I think uh, Christmas Evil's better about the way that it uh, presents it because I think that Joker very much comes across as uh, wanting to have its cake and eat it too, while also shoving it down other people's throats. Um, and <laughs> when it gets caught up in itself, is when it, it causes that self destruct. Uh, to stumble whereas christmas evil can can have the same type of message but stand back and and just watch this character instead of you know pushing the character into situations to 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 push the message uh more so that it's more organic in this situation absolutely it's one of these it's it is one of those stories about the guy who does you know absolutely lose <laughs> lose his composure in the face of societal wrongs but the way that it goes about it in the end by going from like straight realism into more of a fantasy film near the end where mm -hmm. it becomes frankenstein where the logic is kind of thrown out the window it it allows for interpretation where you understand that the reality here has shifted in order to meet the the themes rather yeah. than being this coherent, realistic piece. And what you end up with, and I think this is one of the things that maybe would put people off of the movie, <laughs> is that you end up with a movie that isn't quite a horror film exactly. Uh, not in the way that we've come to expect horror movies to be. Uh, like, as you pointed out, we have... Uh, Friday the 13th and the whole slasher wave and there's not a ton of that in Christmas Evil I mean it's called Christmas Evil but that's a retitling yeah you know the movie was called you better watch out and so it's more about the philosophy of the character and the philosophy of Santa and <laughs> you know trying to recapture the spirit of that but it doesn't have a pile of bodies you know the Murders are very brief and very few. <laughs> and so if you go into it like, oh, man, I want to see, you know, a Silent Night, Deadly Night before Silent Night, Deadly Night. This isn't it. Yeah. If you want to see a Christmas, um, a black Christmas that went further, this isn't it. You know, it's not yeah. it's an outlier, a total outlier from that, you know, uh, black Christmas to Silent Night, Deadly Night arc you know that development of the slasher it's not a part of that 
Yeah, it, it's definitely that the halfway point between a uh, a Black Christmas that has deaths, but but not necessarily are are bloody, and uh, for or yeah, Friday the Thirteenth that's going into the blood. Like you do have it, and you do have some great effects when you do get the blood, but it's not. It doesn't flow as freely as you might expect when you have the the poster of the Santa with the the axe getting to to climb down the chimney. Which I did want to point out that I think one of my favorite sequences this time watching it is when Harry decides to get into the chimney and tries to force <laughs> himself down and get stuck. And he's and he's struggling. And all I can think of is, oh my God, he's he's freaking out because he can somehow see into the future and he knows that poor Phoebe Cates is going to tell a story about somebody getting stuck in a chimney that, that I'm like, this is one step removed from what happens to keep uh, Phoebe Cates' dad in Gremlins. If I thought of the same thing, too. I really did. I mean, like, I was even thinking, I, I wonder if this was maybe the inspiration for that. I mean, I doubt it somehow, but it does have, it does draw those clear comparisons that Santa getting stuck in the chimney because why would you try to go down a chimney it's a terrible idea in the first place you know but yeah, i mean there're only just a couple of kills really and the movie is happy to go right back into harry being santa it's not like once he starts killing he just kills and kills and kills you know the the killing is like incidental or sometimes necessary from his perspective and yeah. sort of his weird, you know, uh, doling out justice as Santa Claus would kind of way. But it's not like he goes and finds the little kids and, yeah, eats their fingers or murders them, you know. Yeah. He He's doesn't, content. He doesn't, he doesn't kill Moss. <laughs> no, little Moss Garcia with his, like, uh, negative body hygiene and his obsession with penthouse. penthouse. God. He, like, he gets a bag of dirt. You know, I, I I thought it was funny that that uh, he he's got the penthouse at first, and you're like, yeah, you know, he's a curious kid. That's that's understandable. It's a little creepy, but yeah, kids are curious. But then the fact when they're getting their their wishes, and and Moss Garcia yells, and he's like, I want a lifetime subscription to penthouse. It's like, oh, oh Moss, that that's the only thing you want, Moss. Okay, you better you better watch out because uh, Patricia Richardson's gonna slap yeah. you across the face. <laughs> I was going to point that out, too. That's right. Patricia Richardson from Home Improvement is his mom, which I didn't realize until Lewis Jackson said it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, it is. And like, she just just straight off just backhands him across the face. And like, it's one of the most violent things in the movie. And you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah, it's a it's like this <laughs> realistic, I don't know, 80s parenting thing of like. <laughs> You know, like sometimes kids just got walloped, man. Like nowadays doesn't really happen. But back then, or I mean, I guess it probably does. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> not, not here at the monkey farm, man. But like in the, in the 80s or whatever, haul off and wallop a kid because they're, you know, being a pain like Moss Garcia. I mean, I, I guess that happened. And there's something about the honesty of that Lewis Jackson putting that in like. Well, I mean, what what do you want from me? People hit their kids, you know, <laughs> like he puts it in because that's just real life sometimes. And well, it's also shocking, too. It's shocking. And then a part of you, because, you know, we're watching the movie through Harry's eyes. A part of us is like, yeah, maybe he deserved that. But then the <laughs> rational part of us goes, man, she hit that kid in the face. You probably shouldn't do that. You know, we're like torn, you know, between those two sides of it, which is also... great because the movie forces us to be with Harry, yeah. but also question him constantly, you know, that, that back and forth. If, if I'm going to question anybody, I'm going to question the, the mother who, who decided to, to name her child Moss. Moss Garcia. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, now the last question that we like asking everybody right now, um, d just because, you know, everybody is at home and, you know, whether you're working from home, whether you're an essential and you're putting yourself out in the field or you're sadly out of work right now, everybody's spending time at home. And while at some point we know this is going to be lifted, um, it looks like movie theaters are going to be closed for months. So we're asking everybody who comes on to suggest three films that you think everybody should take the time at home to watch. They don't need to be new films. They can be older films, but three movies that you think people uh are you know worthy of being revisited 
or that people should go out of their way to check out? Okay. Okay. Yes. One, one springs to mind because obviously it helps out. Uh, no, a couple spring to mind actually that help out movie theaters and, or at least, you know, productions that maybe needed some help. Cause obviously a lot of movies also got pulled from the theaters because the theaters were closed. So we saw a lot of movies just fall by the wayside with their release slates, um, which was sad for Invisible Man because it was doing really, really, really well uh, as a, you know, a universal monster reboot, you know, talking about Frankenstein and everything here. Um, and then we saw, of course, the the Tom Cruise mummy movie like flop terribly a few years back. But here's a legitimate you know, thriller with an invisible man in it that was doing darn well uh, before it was pulled. And that you can rent right now. So that's cool. I, I did that, which frankly, in some ways I prefer than going to the movie theater because, you know, you always get those people. Um, what else? What else? Uh, oh, and then, um, oh man, Alamo Draft House. I don't know when they're doing this. I don't, this episode could come out way after this is out. I, I think so. <laughs> if you're if you're mentioning the film that I think you're going to mention, it it will this episode will help come out after it happens. But people can find a way to probably uh, rent it and still watch it. So continue. Yeah, I know what you're yeah. going to say. <laughs> Alamo is doing a thing to raise money for movie theaters where they're having people rent Roar for a week. Yep. So. Uh, that's, I'm just, I'm just excited about those things. And even if, <laughs> and I'm trying to come up with another one that would kind of like help us help a movie that well, should can, do well or whatever, but it, like it, you it, can it find those. Yeah. I was going to say, it doesn't necessarily have to be a new one. Um, we've, I mean, we, we've talked about shutter, you've got Netflix, you've got Hulu, you've got oh, yeah. a, any number of streaming services. So it could be an older movie that you want to suggest that you think, you know, people, people should definitely watch if they haven't before. You know, this is just the like current filmmaker and me going like, let's let's save films now. Um, you know what movie should have done better? Uh, Doctor Sleep. More people should have seen that, too. So I'll throw that in with my <laughs> promoting recent things that should have made more money. It's 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 Mike Flanagan. It's Stephen King. So I will I will always uh, uh, support that. Doesn't matter what you think in the end of it. But, you know, Stephen King movies are always one that that people should give a chance to. And Mike Flanagan is somebody who uh, I always like his work, so I always want to see him do more work. So yeah, a, a movie that he made making more money so that he can continue to uh, work on films with that size of budget and that size of distribution, I, I will always be for. Yeah, and it was, it's a movie, too, that in terms of like a quarantine-style life that we're living right now, um, it's a the, a long movie, so it'll take up a nice chunk of time. Especially if you're doing so the director's good. cut. The director's cut, yeah, that's the only way I've seen it. I saw the director's cut, um, and man, it's uh quite a journey. So, I mean, is it is it a masterpiece? I don't know, I don't know but like it should have made more money than it did. It it really should have. But like, I don't know. Oh man, The Mist. Everybody should rewatch The Mist in black and white. They should do that. All you're going to do then is make all these people incredibly jealous because you have these people who trapped inside a grocery store that has plenty of food, (laughs) toilet toilet paper, paper and everything. (laughs) So, so that's it's it's almost you know an 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 idealized situation that they're like, well, they have all the food, they can't go outside, that's fine, but they've got the bathrooms, they've got toilet paper, they've got everything in there. Oh, I know. Now I feel bad. Thanks, Adrian. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I would support movies that are coming out now that are that maybe had their release schedule all screwed up. Support that. And, you know, uh, then maybe when the theaters open back up, there will still be a film industry. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, I mean, it it looks like there's a chance that the only thing that we lose out on is AMC. So might might not be the worst situation in the world. Well, there is that because even the smaller theaters uh, like the music box, they're doing you know, streaming things right now. So, you know, I'll cross my fingers fingers that, that in a weird way, the, the smaller chains and the indie theaters are the ones that, that come out of this uh, ready and rearing to go. And people are, are reaching out to them because they become familiar through uh, the renting at home and watching things on those sites. 
and the the bigger chains are the ones that are scrambling trying to figure out what to do because i mean if the worst thing in the world theatrically that happens is that more people go to indie theaters and smaller chains <laughs> i don't i don't think that's the worst yeah. thing in the world i mean and you know also when we come out of it one of the i mean obviously we're missing things like uh windy city horrorama which yeah. was canceled this year and all these festivals and that's that's a tragedy. So I, I really think once this is all over, my my biggest suggestion is just buy your tickets for these festivals. <laughs> you know, this is I mean, it really hurt seeing these things get canceled. You know, I mean, again, that's where you and I met is at one of these festivals. And uh, it's magical. You know, you go, you meet all these people and you watch a bunch of wild movies, new and old. And there's something really special about that, that sitting in your living room, you know, just can't replicate, you know, it's, you can't. So I don't know. Now I'm wistful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wistful is not a bad thing to be at this time, but I, I want to thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk about this movie. This was a great rewatch and, and it, it means a lot to have this discussion. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks, Adrian. I had a good time. I mean, you know, otherwise I would just be, grading and stuff <laughs> and that, that i'd much sounds... rather talk about christmas evil i'm 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 fine with that now where can people find you out on the social media oh boy okay so we are on uh not that i'm using it much lately i apologize but you should follow us so when i do start using it again um we're on instagram at cadavercast Twitter at cadaver underscore cast. And then we're on Facebook to Cadavercast, And then uh, our group, the Cadavercast Critters and Creeps Club. That works. That's simple enough. You guys should definitely do that and make sure to listen to their podcast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Yo Adrian Torres. Uh, the handle for the show itself is at Horrorversary. Keep it very simple, very easy to follow. Uh, we've got lots of episodes coming out. This is the fourth episode that i've done this week um my computer is telling me that I've, <laughs> I've recorded uh 10 okay it says 10 it just literally crossed over into 10 hours in the last 30 days what i know is 10 hours in the last 14 days so we've got episodes that have been coming out at a steady clip um i know that i've got after this in this next two weeks i've got another four episodes that are spread out so we've got episodes coming all the time so we've got plenty of content um you know keep your eyes peeled for it and as always especially at this time be nice to each other and stay safe